Association, uh, actually, the NMRA is is pretty much uh, around the world in terms of their membership. There is a Canadian set of Canadian divisions for the NMRA. Um, however, in 2003, there was a Canadian Railway Modeling Association that was formed um, after the the 2003 convention in Toronto. Uh, there's a number of political and personal issues surrounding the formation of that group, but uh, it's it's doing very very well. It has a very active and vibrant membership, and uh, they work with the NMRA to promote local conventions, local division meets, um, the achievement programs, and other other functions for uh, for modelers. Yes, I'm hoping to have Duncan McCree on the, the call as well this evening. And I, I met Duncan when he uh, came into town for, I guess, there's, there's something similar that exists in 
California, Nevada, and Arizona. And when we have Duncan on, he'll talk a little bit more about that. I don't think it's specifically part of the NMRA, uh, but there's a kind of regional group that has a, a shifting convention. In fact, I think they're they're back in the in the relatively near future. Um, and they have a series of uh, day tours associated with uh, local modelers as well. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to attend the day tours, but it does give me a sense of what the local modelers are doing. And they had a website with a series of photos um, to see what regions and what scales and periods uh, people were modelling in the area. But I found it quite fascinating. There were probably half a dozen uh, layouts of, of suitable completion to at least be toured layouts. And uh, quite impressive. I mean, as I shared last show, the local uh, G-scale um, store has a resident consultant, which gives the sense that there are quite a few G-scale layouts in Las Vegas. But regular house-style layouts, because they're very rare to find a basement in Las Vegas or a similar space uh, for a, a, a traditional, more traditional layout, um, it was interesting to see photos. And this group that meets, is it a group of friends or is it a spin-off from the... Um, local club, or how, how did you gather your, your 10 folk together? Well, the uh, National Association of S-Gagers, which uh, has been around since, oh, I don't know, the mid-50s, I suppose, they, uh, they have a number of members up here who are active both as modelers and as manufacturers of uh, S-scale product. And a couple of those guys had formed a portable layout group a number of years ago in this region and had been taking it around to shows. That's how I was introduced to, uh, to the scale at one of the local, local shows, uh, annual events. And I'd expressed an interest in, in doing some models, showed them some of my work. And uh, eventually I was invited to join. Uh, we rebuilt the modular layout in a, in a new style, a uh, Primo-inspired style and uh, I've taken that around to several shows in the area over the last couple of years. And uh, we just like to get together every so often, even just socially as a group. Uh, there's probably eight of us active in the group, and there's a few more S-scale people who have home layouts in this, uh, in the what they term the Golden Horseshoe region of uh, southern Ontario here. So one of our members opened his home and set up some some uh, tables and uh, cooked a great big pot of chili and uh, had some uh, fresh baking. It was it was a good day, but it was a privately organized event for you know fairly close people in in the hobby, with uh, the emphasis being on uh, S scale uh, kits uh, work and uh, crafts that we were doing during the day, uh, interspersed with our other activities. And when you but, say uh, a few, sorry, when you when you say a few tables, can you give the the listening audience a sense of the the size and the space that's involved with? And was it continuous track or were they separate tables? Oh, uh, don't get me wrong. No, uh, Jim, our uh, our intrepid uh, organizer, he he opened his house up for us. He's got an open plan home where uh, we were able to set up a number of let's say uh, three by six tables in his living living dining room area where we were doing uh, working on kits, uh, cleaning the flash off, uh, assembling things, doing some weathering. Uh, and down in his basement, he's working on a new layout 
based on uh, the Port Dover area around uh, Fort Erie, uh, Lake Erie area. But uh, we weren't actually running trains this day. It was it was purely uh, clinics and getting some projects done, being social and uh, enjoying each other's company, really. And when you have a few folk together that are um, building structures, for example, do you find that they they pick up techniques and styles, or within a group of ten structure builders, do you see different styles that exist from individuals' use of specific techniques? Oh, most definitely. Uh, if you've got half a dozen people in the room, you'll probably have ten or twelve techniques that that can be shared around for plastic structures, uh, wood structures, uh, hydrocal, and all comes into play. Everybody's got their own way of doing things, their own favorite adhesives, their own favorite tools, uh, their preferred order of operations, whether they stain their wood first or paint it afterwards or seal their hydrocal or don't. And uh, you can see the results of uh, the work that they do uh, as work in progress, as finished finish stuff on their home layouts or on the modules, and you get a really good, uh, quick exposure to a number of different options for yourself in, in uh, short order. And the structure part of the hobby is something that we, we didn't touch upon when we spoke last, but it is actually almost a hobby in and of itself for a number of people. I think the benefit of reusing structures and the techniques being useful in in all aspects of model railroading, it gives a kind of introduction to the fact that this is a skill that new hobbyists probably should pick up relatively early on or at least get a sense of the uh, the basic techniques necessary. In terms of the, the extremes, is there a definitional difference between just kind of general structure building and then craftsman kits and then uh, I guess there's probably... Um, kind of kit bashing and then complete building from scratch. I mean, they're all part of the general structure, part of the hobby, but do you see distinctions within these components? Yeah, I'd have to say so. There's uh, a lot of the kits that were available in the past, like the uh, Campbell kits, uh, even if you consider a, a piece of rolling stock, a structure on wheels, the stuff like the Junico kits, the wooden ones, uh, red ball stuff, from like going way back, these were uh, kind of crude and you had to uh, add a lot of aftermarket detail or make your own as you went along. But today's craftsman structures, um, uh, bar mills or uh, uh, Crow River or any of these companies that have access to either laser cutting machines or stereolithography machines or their skilled uh, casters and molders themselves, they make they make some tremendous uh, tremendous kits that, you know, with results out of the box. If you, I'll put that in quotes, out of the box that you you couldn't even hope to achieve 20, 30 years ago. They're just uh, the detail level is astounding. Now, the trouble is when you buy a kit that's a laser cut kit or a craftsman kit, that's pretty much somebody's done all the thinking for you. Uh, you're following a set of detailed instructions and you're going to try and put it together to the best of your ability. It may or may not suit your chosen prototype exactly. You may have to, you may want to make some modifications to it. You may need to to rearrange it. You cut it in half, uh, turn it into a long building. Something 
something untoward, something that's going to stretch your your skills and your your techniques. Um, and then, of course, if if nothing that's available on the market suits the prototype you've chosen, say for instance you've chosen American Civil War or um, early 20s uh, pre-depression, you might not find the structures and stock that you're looking for. You're going to have to scratch build. You're going to need photos, plans, drawings to uh, work up a set of uh, a set of blueprints that you can cut and fit your material from. But uh, that's not for everyone either because you're you're building it as you go. Uh, it's it's you're not following a set a set pattern. It gets better the more you do, uh, the more buildings you build you get pick up your own techniques your own workarounds you know how to fit things together uh, make compromises and that can be a very satisfying hobby in and of itself there are people out there who just build structures and dioramas and very little in the trains so certainly certainly I mean, it's an external observer coming to the U.S. and spending a little bit of time in New England. I haven't spent an extended period of time, but the there is a kind of class of craftsman kits that fit a very, uh, you know, very well-defined part of the U.S. and also describe quite actively what a number of people in the U.S. or perhaps the, the people that have voices that are recorded in the U.S., uh, be it on paper, electronically, videos, what have you. But I think they, the kind of New England style of uh, kit is kind of quintessentially American. And what interests me with regards to regions, even regions within the U.S., is that the structures that are built, uh, irrespective of when they're built, have very distinct styles. And I think if you're trying to um, model areas which are not necessarily supported by uh, the, the kit manufacturers, you're going to have to do some kit bashing somewhere along the line. What interested me um, early on was I was looking to uh, do a layout in Las Vegas, a what-if layout based on the continuation of Amtrak. And there was just by chance an Atlas plastic model of a station that was the spitting image of the Las Vegas uh, Amtrak station. However, that was extremely lucky. All the other structures, particularly the urban structures and these kind of things that you see in Las Vegas, are a particular style. I find this obviously in Arizona and these kind of areas as well. And the region that you're building your, your layout in and also the time period that you're building your layout in will dramatically affect whether or not you can get off the shelf kits. And I think what interests me is that... Some people define their layouts almost by the availability or their own perception of what um, particularly a kind of New England railroad should look like, a transitional railroad or these kind of things. And the kit manufacturers, the craftsman kit manufacturers, cater to them perfectly. There are a few that do um, some southwestern-style architecture. But if you look at Oregon and Seattle and um, large areas that have rail coming in and going out but have particular styles. And I mean, my experience was with regards to Canada as well. Uh, I mean, the area that you live in has a particular kind of housing style which I don't think is necessarily well represented in kits. So this idea of actually going back to plans or having some aesthetic, I mean, in end, it's the perfect scale because you don't need a huge amount of detail. You just need a basic representational structure. But when you move to HO and S, 
and beyond, you're really moving into a, a, peer, a, a scale that demands a certain skill set with regards to building basic structures. If people are going to be creating layouts that are outside the kind of traditional New England area with regards to structures, should they survey um, you know, architecture firms or brochures or this kind of stuff, or should they start taking photographs? How would you recommend people start building structures for the particular region and maybe even the particular period that they're modeling? Gee, uh, well, frankly, if you're, going to, if you're going to go for the prototype approach uh, or you really want to catch the flavor of an area that you're modeling, uh, the ultimate thing to do is to go to the local records office, local library, local university, or, or um, educational institution, see if you can get at their archives and find out if there's, or there even their newspapers, see if you can get at the archives and find out what the historic photos for the time period are uh, in the area you're, you're looking to model, because they are going to be, they're going to give you everything from the type of clothes that people wore, to the type of vehicles that were on the road, to the um, the buildings that were in place, some of which may still be there today, even if you're picking something in the 50s or, or earlier uh, as a modeling era. Uh, there are numerous uh, photo, photo books, uh, history books, um, coffee table books for various regions that that offer excellent uh, color and black and white studies of of different eras and different locales. Um, you can use the internet to some extent to search for uh, structure structure manufacturers and go through their their catalogs of available buildings for uh, to find something that's going to suit the area you're looking at. But sometimes it's it's pretty hit and miss. Um, some companies will do everything for a particular railroad. Uh, the Denver and Rio Grande comes to mind and the Sandy River and Rangeley Lakes, both narrow gauge, one in the west, one in the east. The companies out there that, that do most of the buildings in O-scale for these, for these uh, railroads, you can detail them from one end to the other pretty much. Uh, that's very fortunate, but if you're choosing something uh, like a short line uh, like a Midwest Short Line or, or Granger Railroad or something, you may not be so lucky uh, as to get uh, enough buildings that are suitable for the area to, uh, to to populate your layout, and then you're you're back to relying on on the historic record. Or uh, if you're doing something modern, you can go down and actually photograph what's there, like Lance Mindheim's doing for his uh, Florida uh, shelf layout right now. You can actually go and and get uh, bolt by bolt, block by block detail of the area he's modeling. So, but there are as many approaches as there are modelers. If you don't, if you don't want absolute fidelity, then you can make some compromises and say, oh, okay, the 40s there were a lot of brick buildings being put up in this area. So DPM structures, I'll just bash some things together with DPM structures and and their wall sections. But if you're as you say, if you go up and scale to O scale, people are going to be expecting, you know, the trim work itself is going to be almost visible enough to be, you can't just use a plain strip. You have to use something that's got a, a molded shape to it or an OG to, because you can see it, you can see the shadow line. And uh, the Craftsman Structure kits are certainly stepping up to do 
to do that level of detail on the larger scales. So it appears what you're saying is almost the smaller scales have an advantage, whereas with the larger scales you're going to spend probably the scale squared or cubed even in terms of the additional time with regards to the detail. So building these particular skill sets that we're describing kind of implicitly, would you advise people to go out and just get some, I don't know, plaster card or potentially some kind of strip board and just start looking at how to assemble uh, right angles or curved roofs or these kind of things? I mean, how does one actually pick up the skills that are required to build a basic structure? Uh, it's a good question. There are a lot of tutorial books out there on, on building structures. Uh, Evergreen Styrene, the company that makes the, uh, the shapes and, and uh, textured uh, panels in, in styrene, produce a very good book on using their product uh, to build all sorts of things from structures to, to other models, and they don't limit it simply to uh, model trains. Uh, there are organizations like the IPMS, which is the International Plastic Modeler Society, that have regular meets and uh, competitions where you can go and take clinics and enter your in contests and uh, just talk to the, the various modelers who have items on display. Uh, the NMRA and Canadian associations, uh, I know for a fact, both host clinics in their various divisions on building structures. If you want to go all out, you can get a book on, on building real houses or real brick structures, uh, office buildings, and, and learn from them. Uh, some archives, some universities have uh, plans for various buildings from various historical societies that you can reference and all of the uh, girders, beams, blocks, uh, joists, rafters, they're all detailed fairly well. So you can see from the inside out how a real structure is built. Now, I wouldn't recommend trying that, to, trying to duplicate that uh, board for board in, in N-Scale or HO uh, unless you're going for a contest model like the the dilapidated barn or uh, uh, old uh, old station that's coming apart, where you need to see the interior of the structure. But uh, certainly, um, all the magazines, uh, RMC, MR, Mainline Modeler, uh, which is gone now, sadly, they all had uh, pretty good how-to articles on on building structures. But all you need to do is learn how to cut straight lines and uh, make square corners. That's the, that's the starting point. Very simple tools, uh, exacto with a number 11 blade, um, maybe a northwest short line chopper for, uh, for cutting your strip wood the length, simple glues, uh, whether it's the solvent for the plastic or uh, white glue for the wood, uh, or epoxy, or again, white glue for hydrocal. It's, the, the easiest thing to do is, is go out buy a kit. I know DPM in HO sells a little uh, learner's kit uh, that, that has all the features of their, their larger, more advanced uh, structures uh, in a small packet. I think it was 6 or $7, and you can go ahead and put that together. It's got a detailed set of instructions as a, as a test run um, to learn. You learn by doing in the hobby. It's, 
you can get all sorts of reference material from the books and it'll give you a good start. But until you start cutting the wood and carving the plastic and painting all the bits and pieces, you're, you're kind of out of the, out of the loop. You need to get your hands dirty and the sooner the better, but don't be afraid to make a mistake. Uh, Making a mistake is how you learn how to do things. And when you make a big mistake, you learn a lot really quickly. Certainly. Certainly. So moving on for structures, you raised a number of possibilities with regards to new modelers and various cliches associated with uh, small-style table layouts and the ways in which people can just get started in the hobby. Would you like to talk a little bit about your uh, your general thinking in that regard? Well, getting started in the hobby, it can be pretty daunting. You're, I mean, you're coming into it a lot of times without any prior knowledge. It's just a... Uh, oftentimes it's just a I like trains uh, premise and you start looking around and I'm surprised that even today most of the recommendations involve getting a, a 4 by 8 or 4 by 6 sheet of plywood and plunking down some track and, and getting trains running in circles. And from a an immediate gratification standpoint, you can't beat it. You know, having trains running the same day you've picked them up is really a tremendous uh, uh, feeling. You've got some kinetic, kinetic activity going on, and you can shift some cars around and whatnot. But starting out, that's I wouldn't I wouldn't get bogged down in that. Trying to make a, uh, the tr- traditional oval four by eight layout, I might get that four by eight sheet of plywood, uh, and then I might cut it into four one foot wide strips and have thirty two feet of length and go around the walls, the sophistication level that you can achieve just by rearranging the the base structure uh, and moving from an oval to a point to point is, is tremendous. But, you know, as as we talked about uh, last show, not everybody's into operation. Not everybody wants to do the ultimate in prototype, uh, you know, fidelity and, and uh, going a step-by-step uh, simulation of the real thing. But some people just want to run trains. And without a continuous run, you can get into trouble. You might get bored quickly, uh, and that leads to things gathering dust on the shelf. I'd like to, I'd like to see people, if they're going to build something, is to go and experiment with maybe modules uh, either HO or N-scale modules to learn the basic techniques for track laying and scenery and you know populating with a couple of structures. In this way, they're not committing uh, a whole bunch of their time and, and capital to uh, to a large layout. You know, maybe they, maybe they do something that's two feet by four feet square as a module, and that's what eight square feet instead of 32 square feet on the on the big sheet of plywood. Um, and they'll they'll get a feel right away whether they've made the right they're they're heading down the right path they've made the right choice in terms of the size of the the models they've picked or the theme that they've picked or the era they've picked and by interacting with the other modelers in in the clubs and now sometimes some people don't have clubs locally but you know well, let's go with the the majority for the moment here uh, by interacting with the, the other people in the club, you get a, a really good uh, broad spectrum exposure 
to what everybody else's opinions are on the hobby, and everybody's got different levels of skill, and they're going to have different ideas and different visions and uh, different skill sets that you can draw on. And uh, some people are more than willing to spend, oh, many evenings teaching you how to put down uh, scenery and how to build structures or how to weather cars. And just because they like, they like to talk about the hobby, they're enjoying themselves and they're happy that you're coming along to, to join in the fun too. Certainly. And I think, I mean, for people that don't necessarily have uh, clubs or uh, environment where they have people to assist, there's a wide variety of resources that we've already discussed. But, I mean, I think talking about shelf layout specifically, if you actually get the traditional table-style layout, cut up the wood and put it along the shelf, you get a far better kind of track-to-surface-area ratio in terms of experimentation. And also it gives you an opportunity to do, uh, as, as you were saying, you know, small yards, things that you wouldn't necessarily have in a, in a loop layout on a table and I think in terms of early experimentation and particularly do you really like operations this is something that interests you is this something that you want to pursue in a kind of larger scale you can put a little operating section uh, in a shelf layout and start experimenting whether you know this is something for you or whether you just like as you say the the raw kinetics of the train moving in terms of our uh, discussion last time with regards to scales and people uh, buying uh, a variety of scales. We're really focused on N and HO, and you've talked recently about your interest, your, your broad interest in S. For folks starting out, in terms of the, still the scale-related question, do you think it's worthwhile that they um, interact with people that have a broad range of scale backgrounds, or if they're interested in particular scale, is it better just to gravitate towards someone who already has a layout in that scale? Gee, that's a tough question. Not not everyone in the hobby is a is a polymath. Not everybody is um, is a broad broad minded or um, wide ranging interest in the hobby. Some people are extremely extremely focused, uh, such that they don't even want to talk about uh, railroads that aren't their prototype interest. Never mind a different scale or you know, they don't want to talk about DCC because they're not interested in computers. They want just a DC layout, and they'll, they'll go to great lengths to convince somebody that, oh, you don't need all that fancy stuff. I'll show you how to do it with the, the old-fashioned way. We've been doing it this way for 50 years. It's great. Um, I wouldn't, I, I don't think I would limit myself, you know, if I if it wasn't absolutely necessary, if I was starting out, I would try to touch base with as many people as possible, whether at the hobby shop or via the Internet or uh, even still, you can still contact people via mail or telephone, of course. Uh, there's contact information, or there used to be in, in a lot of magazines, people looking to share information with uh, with others on particular railroads in, in various regions or the historical societies. They have uh, sometimes monthly publications that you can subscribe to and uh, converse via email or there's uh, discussion groups online that you can, you can ask questions of people and, and you will get many more answers than you ever count on, some of which 
uh, is good information, some of which is not so good. Um, but yeah, sticking with with one scale or talking to someone only about one scale, a lot of the techniques and a lot of the ideas in the hobby are not scale specific. They're not region specific. They're not era specific. It's it's the more you know, the more you can know. It, it, I'm just kind of searching for words here on this. It's uh, it's Certainly. such a wide-ranging hobby. There are so many aspects to it, and not everyone is an expert in in all of the areas, and some people will avoid certain areas like the plague. So by sticking with one person or even one one club, you can be you can be you can find yourself going down a path simply because simply for the reason that nobody in the group has thought about doing anything else and they're not going to they're not going to be able to expose you to it so keep an open mind and and try it try your hand at as many things as possible and see see where your interests lie extreme we we didn't talk about z or z scale uh when you were last on but certainly when i started looking particularly in a small apartment at creating a layout it was one of the scales that i gravitated towards however i found the kind of cost benefit analysis that in was actually slightly more compatible with my interests can you talk a little bit about the z scale and i know that it's increasingly moving into the u.s with uh, i think you can get and standard Union Pacific style modern stuff in Z scale, but for a long period of time it was just particular regions in the world. Would you want to introduce Z scale to the listening audience? Oh, good grief! I don't have any personal experience with with making models in Z scale myself. It's just I, I like I like fussy stuff, but that's just taking it a bit too far for me. Yeah. Uh, I do. I did know a, a fellow who did work in in Z and uh, uh, narrow gauge N, which is using N-sized bodies on Z-scale mechanisms to model uh, uh, narrow gauge prototypes. Uh, But he was essentially a a precision machinist uh, watchmaker uh, type fellow. Um, And from a standpoint, if you really want, when you look at a a railway in, in real life and you see let's say the the cp running through the rocky mountains where the scenery just absolutely dwarfs the trains and then z scale is 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 got to be the way to go i mean in an 8 foot high basement or an 8 foot high room if you went floor to ceiling i think i used this this example in an email if you went floor to ceiling with your scenery you could model a 1700 foot high mountain from the foot to the crest and somewhere along that height you can have the track wending its way through the the crevices and and uh, uh, chasms, and you would really get a tremendous sense of uh, the helicopter view of the world. Um, now, however, would that be possible with grades? However, I mean, in a standard sized room, you would really be looping backwards and forwards almost continuously to make the grade on that a reasonable one. Surely. 
Well, yeah, but the real real railroads did that too. Uh, when they couldn't afford to blast a tunnel through something, they they went around and they followed the either the water line uh, of the rivers or they they took the ridges around the around the uh, the rises of the topography. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's going to be a bit of a spaghetti bowl, and I think logistically building it would be well. Let's say it would be interesting to try and build something like that, uh, especially with big big hands like I got. But uh, the the thing I was gonna was gonna say that if if you if you're trying if you expect to be able to shunt cars at a at a yard or a terminus in Z, you, it's going to be really difficult simply because without without the mass, uh, you get uh, the the movement is a little bit unrealistic and a little bit unreliable. In the in the smallest of scales, it can be troublesome even in N scale sometimes with uh, older equipment uh, like 40 foot equipment as opposed to the more modern stuff. It just doesn't have any weight to it out of the box, and uh, it it can run away on you, and it it doesn't want to uncouple, and it or it doesn't want to couple up for you, and then you're fussing with needles and uh, crochet hooks trying to get the couplers together. It's it can be a bit frustrating. If, if, however, you want to model the transcontinental passenger services, or, as I said, something like the uh, the majestic mountains, then something in Z or N would be tremendous. Uh, there's no there's no better way to do it. You mentioned in a recent email to me fine scale, which I guess relates to uh, a kind of historical legacy of, of rail sizes, but also uh, particular kinds of, of modeling techniques. Would you like to talk a little bit more about fine scale? Sure. Um, I guess I guess the easiest way to describe fine scale is kind of like uh, <laughs> it's kind of like low resolution and high resolution on your computer monitor. The fidelity to the prototype, in some cases, is what people talk about when they when they talk about making a fine scale structure or a fine scale locomotive. But really, the root of it started because in let's say double O or O scale seven millimeter, when those were adopted, um, they kind of made some compromises in the track gauge itself and the, the tread size on the wheels, so they were oversized. The wheels were often oversized compared to scale, and the track gauge was often bigger or smaller than it should have been with respect to scale. And the fine scale movements, which in the UK is uh, represented by, say, Scale 7 or the Scale 4 Proto 4 societies, uh, and in the U.S., which started out in the uh, quarter-inch AAR, American Association of Railroads, uh, Bob Brown from uh, Gazette, Narrowbridge Gazette, was heavily involved in that, uh, or Proto 48, Proto 87 uh, uh, specifications, is to really improve the accuracy of the track gauge, the fineness, and the detail level of the track itself, and then... Uh, commensurate with that, the treads on the wheels 
are be, become perfect to scale. So they, they actually look very, very narrow compared to other models, but they're actually proper when you view it compared to a prototype. And uh, when they're running, uh, you, have, you have to spend a lot more time doing your track work because any minor variations can, can be disastrous if you're not tracking properly. But the fine scale movement uh, really, it's hard to tell if the, if the model is properly lit. It can be awfully hard to tell whether it's the real thing or, or a model setup. And some people, rather than have a basement filling empire of standard quality, standard fidelity product, they opt to go the fine scale route and have a very small layout, but built to such a high degree of of finish that it's uh, it's virtually a museum piece, and in that case the the adage uh, do do less better or uh, uh, you know quality over quantity certainly comes uh, becomes very apparent and uh, fine scale I'd have to say is like the ultimate the ultimate aspiration to uh, for modelers to, to aim for if they want uh, the ultimate in reality. And the reason that the layouts are so small is just the amount of work in terms of maintaining gauge, in terms of maintaining running uh, running trains. Is this the issue that basically there's a kind of critical mass where the effort required in order to maintain all of this is is too much for a, it's even an extreme modeler to maintain? Is that the idea behind it? Yeah, pretty much. Um, even like I've operated on some pretty big layouts, and if they were built to fine scale standards, I couldn't imagine looking after them. The um, the problems with humidity and temperature, the problems with uh, just wear and tear over time, and finer cross section on on the rail, and and uh, uh, more more delicate detail on everything it really takes a beating, especially if you're doing regular operating sessions. So in terms of, you know, I, good grief. If I was to do a fine scale model, I would want to have the layout probably a quarter the size or a fifth of the size of something. You know, instead of doing something with 200 feet of track, I'd maybe want 40 feet of track, if, if that makes sense. It's just, Certainly. it's a lot of care and attention required. And in terms of things like temperature gradients, I mean, with that degree of sensitivity, obviously, even standard seasonal temperature gradients and potentially even humidity with regards to wood and these kind of things, I mean, it, it sounds like something that would need a, either a great degree of maintenance or a certain amount of maintenance plus things that would stabilize those kind of factors. Luckily, most of us live in in fairly reasonably controlled environments. We've got air conditioning and and central heat and and uh, humidifiers and dehumidifiers available pretty much everywhere in North America. So it's not it's not that big a deal. It it becomes an investment, uh, an ancillary investment in the hobby, looking just looking after the environment in which your layout is is built but um, if you're if you're a real maven for details and you like the the nuts and bolts then going to fine scale standards is well certainly certainly as i said it's, it's the pinnacle of of uh, 
fine model building. It's not for everyone. But I can imagine that basically there's nothing ready to run in fine scale. I'm imagining that everything is starting from the, the wheels up, basically. It would be preferable to have a skill in machining in order to do some of these details. Or can you actually get uh, a ready-to-run fine-scale locomotive? Mm, I can't think of any fine-scale locomotives that are available off the shelf except for a single O-scale model uh, was a South, Southern Pacific steam engine, if I'm not mistaken, and it was gorgeous. I mean, it was just a drool-making uh, image to see this this model. The fidelity on it was incredible. Uh, that said, you can you can pick up fine-scale model kits for engines and rolling stock in England for quite a few basic uh, basic engines and basic pieces of rolling stock. And companies like uh, Allen Gibson and, and Ultrascale in England uh, sell fine-scale wheels for wagons and, and engines. So if you're scratch-building yourself, you don't have to form all the difficult spokes and cranks and whatnot. You can pick them up from, from a couple of manufacturers already. So the wheels are really the start, but if you were to make... Uh be it a steam locomotive or anything even closer to the modern age, is it all historical stuff, the fine scale, or is the modern era fine scale stuff too? Um, I haven't seen an awful lot of modern era stuff that's that's fine scale. Now, that said, um, just talking about the track and wheel standards, uh, you can run fine scale up to today's date, right? That's not a problem. And uh, a company like say, Northwest Shortline uh, would have all of the wheel sets uh, ready-made to go with the proper tread and proper flange sizes, and uh, microengineering has all the rail you want, and even some pre-made track now, flex track and turnouts that are, that are if they're not fine scale, they're awfully close. Um, so you can, you can buy that and go ahead and, and just swap out the wheel sets and uh, tighten up all your tolerances on your track itself and add all the details from companies like Proto 87 Stores has all the track details for turnouts and uh, crossings. Um, but in terms of the the historical or, or, or older models, yeah, it's in, in England in, in double O scale, for instance, or, or seven millimeter uh, O scale, there are quite a few kits that uh, that can be purchased that that build up into the most fantastically detailed and delicate looking models of uh, Great Western or um, uh, LMS uh, trains from the 30s and 40s. Just absolutely brilliant stuff. You, you wonder that somebody took the time to invested all the time to make the detail level that they've they've actually achieved but uh yeah it's 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 almost an aesthetic thing at that point it's it's not just the the striving for the the detail level it's there it's this beauteous uh achievement <laughs> it's uh rolling artwork at that point 
And in terms of the engine construction, I mean, I'm assuming it's all metal and that would require soldering or do you use metal glues or how do you actually put together the engines? A lot of the engine kits are combinations of, say, either etched brass or etched nickel silver frets that have to be folded carefully to into the various angles and then soldered up. It, they always work better soldering. You can use epoxies and whatnot, but it's just it's not the same. You want to go solder, either regular solder or silver solder. And uh, a lot of the chassis uh, are designed with compensation. They're not a rigid chassis, so they the axles are designed to, to move in, in the horn blocks up and down to take in any variations in the track work. Uh, the superstructures, either fret, uh, etched fret stuff again, or often uh, pewter or other white metal castings that have to be soldered on with uh, low temperature solder, or or in this case uh, some glues, super glue or or whatnot. Then you have to paint it and line it, of course, and uh, do all your deckling and and a little bit of weathering. But uh, I mean, by the time they're done, they're brilliant looking, brilliant looking pieces of art. So, per our last show, I'd like to conclude with some discussion associated with garden railways because I think this is something that has always interested me, and this is also, I guess, a new passion for you, or at least something that you're planning currently. Can you talk a little bit about your uh, own early experiences, your own planning with regards to your um, garden railway, and also how folks can get started with regards to this kind of stuff? Well, in the garden railway situation, I guess I got I got drawn into it by a very devious friend of mine who who knows that I couldn't resist. Once once I saw it, I wasn't going to be able to resist. So he. Uh, managed to get me invited to a, an open day at someone's garden where a variety of um, live steam engines were being operated on both uh, 32 and 45 millimeter gauge track. And these were anything from kit-built locomotives up to some of the most stunning examples of uh, model engineering I've, I've ever had the pleasure to see and that were coal-fired. We had a great day, and uh, the hook was set. Uh, there was no way I was going to escape from its grasp, so I started casting about for uh, an entry-level locomotive that I could I could find in the live steam uh, area, which would be suitable to to build up. And uh, AccuCraft in the states has a wonderful little kit. Uh, the locomotive is called a Ruby. It's probably typically in the area of about four hundred dollars. Uh, for purchase, it's uh, how shall I say? It's a screwdriver kit. It doesn't require that you machine any castings. Everything's ready to go in the box. It does require some careful assembly uh, with some lapping in of the pistons for the valves and the steam chests, and also the axle boxes, just so it, it runs nice and has a nice running fit in all of the all the bearing surfaces. So if you take your time, probably on the order of maybe 30 hours of assembly time, the time you put it together, take it apart, put it together, take it apart, do all the fitting and, and settling, and uh, you'll end up with a very sweet running, butane-fired 
steam engine uh, that anybody would be proud to own. So I, I'd, I'd located one and was, was prepared to, to purchase this when an estate sale came up and a roundhouse engineering locomotive was part of the, part of the estate, uh, complete with the radio control for the direction and, and uh, throttle regulator. And the price was, well, I thought they'd made a mistake with the price. It was so low. But uh, I, I dove on it and uh, became the proud owner of Roundhouse Lady Anne uh, and painted rather fancifully in great Western colors, uh, little, little uh, grandiose dreams for such a small locomotive. But uh, having purchased that, I was welcomed into the fold, and everybody has been terrific uh, with the support and, and information about how to proceed with construction of the actual layout and uh, advice on negotiating the right of way with your your domestic uh, authorities <laughs> and yeah <laughs> they all have their their little uh, uh methodologies and uh, and whatnot it's uh it's again it's it's another community of hobbyists who have demonstrated quite fully to me that that the best people in the world are model railroad people. They're quite willing to share of their time, their expertise, their surplus equipment, their refreshing beverages, the whole nine yards. It's, uh, it, it's been uh, very uh, gratifying in some ways to find that there are, there are people that, that, that are so enthused about their hobby that, uh, that uh, very little can bring them down. So, we're uh, a couple of us who have vested interests and are new to the to the uh, to live steam end of things. Are kind of pooling our resources in terms of uh, coming up with a working party, such that each one will get a turn in their garden, with everyone helping to to move the rocks and dig the holes and erect the the posts and start spiking down any rail or bending any rail to shape uh, come the uh, the earliest part of the spring that we can manage, I think. So, so you're actually going uh, to effectively hand lay the track. Well, yeah, it, you know, it's funny. I, I went to the local Garden Railway Center, which is quite a big one, and it's probably about half an hour's drive from here. And uh, I asked the, the owner about where I could get some rail, and he said, well, the rail's over here, and I walked over with him and of course it was it was track it was brass track on on plastic uh, ties and I said no no just the rail and he says well what would you do with that and I said well <laughs> I'd, you know I'd, I'd spike it onto some ties uh, he says and he looked at me like I'd grown another head or something or I had an arm spouting from my, the middle of my forehead or something um, apparently that's just not done much around here especially for the the electric garden railways, that is the, the ones that run with either onboard battery or uh, through the rails delivery of power to an, a motor on board. Most of, that, most of that group of garden railway people just buy the track ready, to, ready as it is in a box of 12 pieces or 20 pieces and then start uh, putting it down on the baseboards or into the gravel ballast that they've laid so my request 
took them by surprise. Um, I have located a source of rail, uh, aluminum rail, and uh, I'll get some spikes. And um, I've uh, had the offer of a table saw to cut up as many as many ties as I want. We're probably going to try and get some try and get some cedar fence boards and uh, and cut them up with a thin blade into as many sleepers or ties as we can because the cedar is going to be exposed to the elements for a long time. We want it to last as long as possible. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, when I, apparently when I get involved in something, I've got to go the weird route. I can't do the normal everyday stuff that everyone else is doing. So it makes it more interesting and I meet more interesting people this way. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. But in terms of the temperature gradients and actually maintaining the track, it sounds like, similar to your discussion with fine scale, you will probably either implicitly or explicitly create some limits on the size of the layout based on the amount of track maintenance that you're going to do. Am I right in that thinking? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you don't want to spend you don't want to spend the first month of good weather just trying to get the track back into some horizontal arrangement. It's but uh, that said, the fellow we had the open day at in his garden has a very, very small layout. It's surprising how, how tiny the layout is. It's, it's a simple oval of track in a raised bed in his garden. It has one passing loop in front of a very simple station and one stub siding. And uh, despite that, we had a tremendous day. There was probably... 12 different locomotives that ran on it over the course of the day. Uh, much much hand-waving and discussion ensued during the day. Um, very festive. Uh, it was a beautiful afternoon to spend in the garden. And uh, it, it didn't require... It wasn't like moving the indoors outdoors. It's not... The concept I see in most garden railways is not to have something like you would have in your basement. You don't have a, a yard with 12 tracks in it and, and 400 uh, pieces of rolling stock and 12 engines and, you know, all the buildings along the right-of-way. They're often, not always, but often very simple, almost a caricature of, of a layout. It, it's part of, part of the joy of it is to be outside in the good weather, in the garden, um, in a social setting. It's not so much the, you're not banging cars about trying to, to shift the, all the goods out of a mine or a logging camp or something. It's, it's much more the display of model engineering efforts than it is the display of a prototypically accurate model railway. Certainly, certainly. But I think... The Certainly the, the garden railways that I've seen have also, the, the prototypes have, that they've been based on have always been uh, of that kind of smaller scale, maybe short line, some kind of narrative which lends itself. I mean, they, I, I don't think you would do a garden layout of Penn Station or anything like that. I mean, my sense is that the kind of environment, the way in which the layout is going to have to be constructed lends itself to the kind of prototypes which map onto garden railways specifically is this your feeling as well oh definitely you, you you're much more likely to see something like in a, a british branch line 
or um, a, a representation of a logging line with spindly trestles and and uh, uh, waterfalls and whatnot with a, a Shea locomotive or a Climax hammering up the rails at slow speed. It's, it's much more a sense of um, theater, I think, than, than uh, the typical indoor railway would be. There's a gee whiz factor to garden railways that, that, isn't, that isn't present in, in indoor railways. And uh, oftentimes a really twisted sense of humor uh, present in the garden railways. There's there'll there'll be a little a little detail that that's that's a, a quite a clever joke or um, the the ta- the station if there's a station present the station name may be quite uh, quite humor humorous or a double entendre or something. It's there's a bit more whimsy in the outdoor than there is in the indoor uh, that I'm finding anyway here. Interesting. So, Interesting. But to, to your earlier question where you talked about the design being affected by the considerations of temperature, yes, most definitely. I'm going to have to limit what my scope of work is simply because I don't want to be spending all my time in maintenance. But, uh, yeah, we're going to try our best to use maybe limestone screening as ballast, which will allow for good drainage, uh, or we'll, we'll raise it up to almost waist level so that us uh, aging folks don't have to bend down so much to get at the, the boilers and burners, um, in which case we'll use fence-type arrange, fence post-type arrangements and pound them in or mount them in cement. Uh, hopefully sufficiently well that the frost won't heave them, but we're it's going to the first the first effort is going to be largely experimental for for three or four of us that are new to the live steam uh, group in this area. So, and if the three or four of you that are getting together, uh, are, I mean, do you have are you a, a paper planner? Are the people who you're uh, doing this with developing their own kind of paper plans or? Is it such uh, a kind of hands-on hobby that you'll actually have to start laying track before you can come even close to generating a plan? Well, I think uh, about half of us are, are dedicated paper or computer planners. We'll draw things out to the nearest quarter inch in, in this outdoor effort, and we'll be out there with a laser level and, and uh, batter boards and line levels in the whole nine yards measuring things off to a to a high degree of accuracy only to be thwarted in the end by mother nature but that's that's part of the fun for us too i mean it's i i think we're going to temper each other's behaviors uh simply because there's people that like to get going and get building and you know where do i start digging the first hole uh, before pencil is touched paper that's fine we're going to we're going to make it through this effort in our own backyards i think uh simply because we are different i think it's going to work out really well in our uh, in our execution because our approaches are are disparate so and it also sounds like you have the amazing benefit of kind of learning from each other so whilst your own individual layouts will only be a third or a quarter of the total you'll actually learn, you know, four times as much skill set in terms of going and working on each other's uh, layouts progressively. 
That sounds like a, a fascinating project. So you, you hinted at the fact that you're a, a bit of a paper planner initially. Have you already started doing sketches and getting a sense of what you'd like to put in there? Well, there's there's numerous envelopes here. The backs of envelopes have sprouted uh, doodles pretty much after every meal here. But uh, again, you know, you, you've got this initial feeling that, oh, let's see how much I can get into the space. But being outdoor, I have to keep breaking my, my preconceived notions. It's, it's not an indoor railway. I don't have to be limited by, by walls and, uh, and structure that's in the walls, whether it's the, the joists or, or studs. I'm, it's going to be, it should be much more organic. I'm going to try and let the, the landscape dictate a little bit of, of how the trains are going to, to wend their way around. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, my wife's got some ideas of her own about how how it should look and how involved in the garden itself, in the garden proper itself, it's going to be, whether it's going to run along one side of the garden or through the plants. We haven't quite gotten that far in the discussions yet because, as I said, her idea of what it looks like is different from what my idea is, and we're going to have to come to a compromise. But it sounds like another dynamic with regards to the track is also the living part of the plant element that exists within garden railways. I mean, in terms of the complexity, when you actually have kind of growing elements within, you know, in between uh, various parts of the layout, I guess you don't really have any sense of that currently. But in your broader group of friends, are there existing garden railway folk who could give you this kind of input at this stage? Oh, most definitely. And groups like the 16mm Narrow Gauge Association have a, have a wonderful annual DVD that they send out to the membership, uh, and you get a terrific sense of maybe a dozen gardens every year of, of how, how they go through the... Um, the process of planning and and maintaining their railways uh, in order to keep the uh, undergrowth from overgrowing everything and and taking over the track bed and whatnot. Um, it's you can see how people have adopted um, uh, low low lying plants in a lot of cases uh, or dwarf plants or things that don't spread. Uh, like not ground cover, so that it doesn't uh, take over and get into the uh, into the sleepers and cause problems with either uh, uh, fungus or uh, the other problems with rot and whatnot, keeping too much water near the near the wood. I hate to say this, but it's it's an organic process. We're going to have to learn as we go along and and see what works for us. And I have no doubt that over the course of many seasons we're going to have to pick up and relay or reroute or replant things just because they don't they don't work out they don't work out as we had initially envisioned uh from the, at the at the outset of the planning phase but um it's when it's properly when it's properly done it, it's really stunning you don't it's almost as if you don't see the difference between the scale of the real plants and the scale of the, the trains running through them. It's just this wonderful greenery uh, that kind of gives you a, an impression of the area you're running through. 
as being part of of a real real life uh, layout because of course the, the wind is moving the the plants around it's not static and you've got the the sounds of the the animals and and uh, whatnot in the area uh, that that add to the illusion so it's it's a different immersive effect than than being inside uh, in the basement or in the in the loft in and with your electric trains certainly certainly it sounds like it allows itself for a a kind of continuous theme and evolution as as things develop and as you say as you do uh, maintaining track work well chris i'd like to thank you once again for the chance to chat with you on on model rail radio you've given a, a wonderful insight into a number of aspects of the hobby and certainly i'd like to invite you back on a, a future show maybe even the next show to cover a, a wide variety of additional topics it's wonderful to have the opportunity to chat with you Oh, thanks a lot, Tom. I always have uh, a good time chatting with you about the hobby. Great. And for folks who are also interested in participating, our next show will be recorded November 20th, 2009, probably around 6.30 Pacific. But if you're interested in getting more information, if you're interested in corresponding with Chris and myself, there is a mailing list attached to the Model Rail Radio website. So if you go to modelrailradio.com, all one word, and subscribe to the mailing list, You'll be able to uh, chat with Chris and myself and other folks who have subscribed to the mailing list and talk about upcoming show topics, suggest show topics, and just get involved with regards to the, uh, to the show. So thank you, Chris, once again for calling in, and thanks to folks for listening in. Good night.